The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my honor to welcome my guest, Dr. Allison Alcon. She is a professor of sociology at the University of the Pacific based in Stockton, California, where her research seeks to understand and advocate for food justice. She explores the ways that racial and economic identities and inequalities affect efforts to create truly sustainable food systems. She is the author of Black, White, and Green, Race, Farmers, Markets, and the Green Economy, and co-editor of Cultivating Food Justice, The New Food Activism, and most recently, A Recipe for Gentrification, Food, Power, and Resistance in the City. Dr. Alcon employs a variety of research methods in her work, including participant observation, interviews, and ethnography. Her courses emphasize student-centered learning, and she encourages the deconstruction of popular media. I happened to see a TEDx Emory presentation that she gave titled Food as Radical Empathy. It was done in 2018. I'll provide a link to that. It was fantastic, and I knew I wanted to have you on as a guest. So welcome, Dr. Alcon. Thank you so much for having me. Well, first, what I thought we'd do is start with your great TED Talk and explore this concept of radical empathy, because I think as we enter a new year, having new visions and new ideas of how we can have more unity and true progress to save our planet and protect public health would be in good spirits. So tell me something, how did you get interested in this notion of food as radical empathy? I'm trying to figure out what in all the work I've done makes the most sense. How do I tie it all together? What's the story that I want to tell? And I happen to have been listening to a podcast that I really like called On Being, Mm. which is kind of about contemporary spirituality, but not religion or kind of woo-woo. And it's really like kind of down to earth. And there was an interview with Isabel Wilkerson, who's the author of the Warmth of Other Suns, the book about the Great Migration, is such a beautiful book, and more recently a book called Cast. And in this interview, she talked about this idea of radical empathy. And it's this quote from her that I start the talk with because I had this bell ringing inside me, like, aha, kind of moment of like, this is really what I want to say. And this is really what I want to ask of people. You know, how do we use food as a means to understand each other's experiences and to advocate for a more loving, a more caring, and a more liberated world. Hmm. I just loved the way you pulled so many injustices in our food system together under this umbrella of radical empathy. And I've been trying to figure out how do I describe this notion of radical empathy and I liked the way you described it as a way to consider another person's point of view or getting inside one another's experience. 
How would you maybe further explain that idea or concept? Yeah, I mean, that again is actually the nature of the quote from Isabel Wilkerson, and I want to give her all the credit that she deserves because it was really her words that really got me thinking. But to go further, right, this idea that we live in a society where there is so much judgment, particularly of people who are struggling under the weight of things like racism and capitalism and environmental injustices, right, where politicians can reliably get the support they want by fueling fear of people who already have less than others. And mm-hmm. so to me, it's it's funny because I, I once got asked the question of like, well, do all people need to have more empathy in us? You know, obviously, empathy is never a bad thing. But my call is for people who have more privilege to have more empathy for people who don't. And, mm-hmm. you know, privilege is a kind of loaded and multidimensional term. And so that can mean all kinds of things. But it's really about listening to the stories of people who have not always been able to make the choices that they would want to make for themselves and who haven't always had access to the means to take care of themselves and each other in a way that I think all people deserve. I just could not agree more. Yeah, so it's just about, you know, there's so much judgment around food. I think women in particular are very kind of acutely aware of the ways that we are judged and also judge one another in terms of what we eat, whether we take the kind of current health advice as seriously as we should, and particularly like white and privileged women. There's like a lot of anxiety around this stuff, right? Am I eating the right thing? Am I feeding my children the right thing? Am I thin enough? Is my medical advice being swayed by my size rather than my actual health? And so I think that we know that food is often a place where judgment happens, but of course food is also a place where joy happens. I remember working in the medical field where people would really be victims of their environments, their economic environment, their physical environment, and yet they were oftentimes blamed or victimized for the way they were eating. It was looked upon as being, well, you're just not making good choices. And what I love about this idea of building radical empathy is that we can get into that person, ask them why they're eating what they are, and what prevents them from eating better, rather than to automatically have that judgment, as you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, I think that it makes sense to start where people are at. And I'm not a nutritionist, and I don't feel any need to... I'm not exactly sure how to say this, but I think that what I want to do is listen to people talk about where they're at and Mm -hmm. what brings them joy. And I want to change policies in a way that gives people more access to make the kinds of choices that they want to make for themselves. The idea that we would take people who are dealing with the kind of incredible burden of work in like of low wage work in late capitalism and the burdens of racial oppression and we would say, Oh, but I think you should eat differently, right? Um, mm-hmm. as if that's gonna be a meaningful way for change to happen at a broader scale, right? We're not gonna change the world by changing individual people's food choices. We're going to change the world by changing the circumstances in which those choices are made. 
And if that means people want to eat more fresh food and fresh vegetables, great. If that means they want to be cooking from scratch, great. If that means they want to be supporting food artisans or becoming food artisans and making food and selling it and they want that to be a career for them, great. All of these, I think, are valid choices. And there's so much like, oh, if you don't eat healthy, then you've caused your own problems. And that thinking is just so destructive. And I can't imagine what it's like. Mm -hmm. But it feels so harmful to me to imagine that somebody is showing up to see a doctor, to see a nutritionist, and what they're getting isn't deep empathy. What they're getting is judgment. And I think there really needs to be a radical rethinking of the whole medicalized food world to begin to hear people and to work with them and advocate with them for a change in their in their circumstances, not just a change in their behavior. One of the things that has been kind of heartening in this crazy year of virus and disease and pathogen is to see the medical industry understanding that health is a social good. Health is not just about you and the like individual automatons making your cost-benefit analysis, your like economic thinking. All of these choices we make about health are social choices. And so starting to think about the ways that people find themselves where they are and navigate their circumstances as best they can, and then how do we make those circumstances better? How do we make that navigation easier? And then the choice to eat healthy will come or not come, but people will have better lives. Right. Well, I think that teaching radical empathy would be truly helpful in getting us to a more humane endpoint. And in your talk, Food is Radical Empathy, one of the things that you brought forth was how food can be an insult and how food is so embedded in racism. And you tell the story of Fox News anchors who would be spewing forth anti-Muslim propaganda but then going down to the halal food truck on the street and having a Middle Eastern-inspired meal for lunch and being able to recognize those ironies and helping us all see that, yeah, we love this cultural food, so why can't we embrace the culture too? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that definitely happens with food, but it happens with other parts of different cultures where mainstream or white popular culture picks and chooses pieces of other cultures without context and then repackages it and sells it to other white people. Like I've been doing yoga for 20 years. And so there's a lot of this in the yoga world. And that's not to say that I have a very deep relationship with the kind of lineages of yoga, but I recognize the irony that white people teaching yoga to each other has become a multi-million dollar industry. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, you also brought forth the work of Human Rights Watch, and you mentioned a statistic that blew me away because I didn't realize that it was just as high as it is, and that was that 80% of female farm workers experience sexual harassment or even assault. And this is a hidden part of our food system that needs to be understood. And I remember one of the road trips I took, and I was driving through California, and I saw Mexican workers in the field harvesting celery. And I stopped in my tracks because I thought, my gosh, these individuals are so well-trained. They're so fast. 
they're doing such hard, backbreaking work. And yet, how many of us think about those hands when we go to the grocery store and we pick up a bunch of celery? And that's the disconnection that I think your work helps us see. Thank you. And I think that the idea that we are, as a nation, we can get especially the right wing can get people kind of whipped up into a frenzy by talking about immigrants as a threat to American society, right? I think about Trump and all the migrant caravan stuff that happened, you know, a year or so ago. Right. I don't know. Time is so funny these days. But at the same time, our society would entirely come to a halt without immigrant labor. We are so incredibly dependent on it. And the fact that we refuse, right? It's not that we can't make that labor life-sustaining and decently paid and involve health care. Every summer, California farm workers die because it gets so hot and they don't get enough breaks or shade, Mm -hmm. right? Literally die of heat exhaustion. We have so little empathy for people who are running away from really dire circumstances. Um, One of my close friends, Laura Ann Minkoff-Zern, is a professor of food studies at Syracuse. And she did research on Mexican immigrant farmers in the United States. And one of the things she found is that people were immigrating because there were such strong threats to their safety at home. It wasn't just about wanting to work for a better life, you know, economically, which I think is kind of the traditional narrative of immigration. It was that their very safety was under threat. And so they immigrated to the United States. And they found work doing something they knew very well how to do, which is working in the fields, doing farm work, things that most Americans do not do, will not do. And the fact that we call it unskilled labor is just unfathomable to me. It is incredibly skilled labor. And that we won't even create a floor so that if you're working, you can sustain yourself and your family. Exactly. That if you're working, you know, or if you're working or if you're not working, right, if you're sick, you should have access to health care. Like, I just feel like it's such a minimal thing. And it's so unconscionable to me that so many people in the U.S. just feel like it's not something that they can do or want to do. Mm hmm. And there's so much disconnection, like the U.S. dietary guidelines, you know, it's updated every five years and the new edition just came out. And there's a quote from USDA that talks about food as being a profound influence on how and who we are, our health. And yet you mentioned in your talk, anyone who eats should be outraged by cuts to feeding programs. Absolutely. I mean, one of the most striking images of the pandemic are these lines of cars lined up at food banks. Exactly. Because the government-sponsored programs, things like food stamps, but all the different varieties of food assistance, are they're not enough under normal times. Right. And these are certainly not normal times. And so more people are qualifying. Congress is appropriating more money but it's still not enough. So there are people end up, they can't make enough the money in the economy. They can't get the money from the government in any kind of safety net function. And so they end up relying on these charities, which are wonderful things done by people with so much heart for the most part, but do not fit the needs and are not like, that's not their job to provide things that the state is just refusing to provide. And then a lot of these food banks end up relying on corporate food donations because it's the only way they can get enough food and money in the door to function. 
And then there's a guy named Andy Fisher. He's now the head of the Ecological Farming Association. He wrote a book called Big Hunger that came out a few years ago about the incredible corporate world of the emergency food system. And this isn't all food banks, but it's specifically about Feeding America, which is kind of a chain of food banks across the country. It's the one that Jeff Bezos just gave a ton of money to. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're doing important work, but they're doing it in such a way that props up the very corporations that don't pay enough to make tea so that people need food stamps to begin with. Right. I mean, at places like Walmart, you literally get an application for food stamps alongside your employment paperwork. So it's the taxpayer that supplements those employees. It's just crazy. But anyway, we have to take one break because we're halfway through. I just want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Dr. Allison Alcon. She is a professor of sociology at the University of the Pacific in Stockton, California. We are going to be talking about her latest book that she is co-editor on. It's titled A Recipe for Gentrification, Food Power and Resistance in the City. And we have been exploring just so many avenues based on her excellent TED Talk titled Food as Radical Empathy. Before we leave this topic of Food as Radical Empathy, I want to end that conversation with you had some recommendations on how we can build empathy via understanding each other's foods. Do you want to give us just a couple of things that we can do to help us further develop this in ourselves? Yeah. In the TED Talk, I start from the most personal, and then I build up to things that are more social. So for me, I think a way to start is by eating other people's food, hearing other people's stories. There is so much good food writing, and there's still a lot of bias in terms of pieces getting written by white and more privileged people getting a lot more play than pieces written by people of color, people who are from more difficult circumstances. But there is so much good food writing out there that it doesn't take a ton of searching around to find stories of struggle and stories of resilience and survival and really engaging with both the food and the stories behind it. So I think that's a really good place to start on a very personal level. And then I think it really comes to advocacy. So there, And there's so many causes. Whatever it is you most are passionate about, there is a link to food there. If it's racial justice, there are so many ways that racial injustice is woven into the food system. And so many incredible activists who are using food as a way to talk about and think about and imagine a world of racial justice. And that's true in Black Lives Matter, and that's true in the reemergence of indigenous activism that's come to the forefront since Standing Rock. It's true of all sorts of activism. If you're thinking about climate change, climate change is so deeply linked to the food system and climate justice. And, oh, and if it's hunger, that's the other thing we've been talking about today is making sure that people have adequate wages or adequate money. I can be a little bit agnostic about whether I think the answer is universal basic income and delinking sustenance and work or increasing wages and making it so that anybody who works has enough to take care of what they need. And I absolutely believe that, you know, I know you said you were a nutritionist and the single best thing we can do to improve nutrition is make sure people have more money in their pockets to be able to afford the kinds of foods that they want. I also feel like there is a movement among nutritionists. You know, I've been following a few people, an acquaintance who's a doctor at Kaiser, 
and who's been working on a culturally appropriate nutrition program where they learn about different people's backgrounds and try and advocate for a nutrition program that is tailored to their cultural needs and dietary preferences. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a former graduate student who worked at a place called the Homeless Prenatal Program, and it was about teaching basic cooking and learning from the experiences of homeless mothers because so much of the dietary advice was aimed at what the children need, and there was almost no regard at all for the mother's own bodies and own circumstances. Hmm. And she did some really wonderful work looking at um, creating kind of a trauma-informed nutrition program, which was basically just getting people together to cook together and talk about their own stories. I mean, it's more sophisticated than that, but that was really what was at the heart of it. Right. Um, That deep listening, that deep empathy. Mm -hmm. It's so important. One of the things that we hear a lot in terms of making a more just food system is this idea of shopping with our forks. And I love the way you push us beyond that and force us to rethink other systems, economic systems that lead to food injustice and hunger. And so I just think there's so much in the work that you're doing. I guess I should ask you just straight out if you could maybe give us a brief definition of food justice. That is, it's a good place to start and also a very complicated question. When I first started doing this work, I thought of food justice as community-based and local and organic and about race and racism, but it was supporting farmers who are people of color, making sure all communities have access to the kinds of foods that they prefer. And I think all of that is true. But as I've been writing about this for a long time and I take that step back, I think about it even more broadly, like understanding food injustices, about understanding all of the different ways that inequality is things like race and class and gender and sexuality and national status, all of the ways that those inequalities intersect with what gets called the food system, right? How do we produce food? How do we distribute food? Where does food labor fit into all of this? Who does what in the food system and who gets what kind of remuneration and what kind of prestige? And then who eats what kind of food and Mm. why? And so it's If you thought about it as kind of a Venn diagram between all those inequalities on the one hand and all of these parts of the food system on the other hand, that interstitial space, that space in between, that's where the the struggle and the joy of food justice is. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of justice, I think that your latest book that you've co-edited, A Recipe for Gentrification, Food, Power, and Resistance in the City, puts a lens on something that is really something that I certainly hadn't considered. And that is where you've got urban environments, where you've got urban gardens, or communities where, say, a brand new coffee shop comes in, and gentrification begins through food. And then suddenly the people who were living in those communities can no longer afford to be there. What would you like to bring forth from this book? So I first started looking at gentrification because of a graduate student of mine. He went to Davis, but he was a local food justice activist in Oakland and also the brother of another activist who is an old friend of mine. So there was kind of a personal connection, too. And he worked for an organization called Fat Beats. 
fat with a pH beets like the vegetable. Mm-hmm. And they had a farmer's market in North Oakland. They were a food justice organization. They worked with farmers of color. They had a program that supported local, especially immigrant folks who wanted to start food-based businesses. They had kind of like an incubator for them. They did what I think of as very typical food justice things. And then there was this realtor in their neighborhood who created a video about why you should want to move to Oakland. And it was basically aimed at white would-be gentrifiers saying, here's all the things that will make you want to come to this neighborhood. And they showed Fat Beats' farmer's market. And I think they had maybe a community-supported agriculture thing at the time. But they basically used them as an amenity, being like, oh, you should want to live in this neighborhood because here's this great farmer's market and this organic garden and things like that. And it really just opened my eyes to all the ways that food and especially like sustainable food, if I can use that term really loosely, the farm to table, local organic, that kind of world was not the cause of gentrification, but was part of the package and so could be a window into understanding it in a new way. And so that's what I had been working on. And Josh became one of my co-authors on my chapter in A Recipe for Gentrification, as well as Auntie Frances Moore, who is an incredible activist. God, she's been, she is a former Black Panther, formerly homeless woman who has been feeding her friends and neighbors once a week for probably 10, 12 years now. And some people who live in the neighborhood, some people who are houseless, it's kind of a just show up and everyone is welcome. And she has almost no budget. She has no staff. It's just her and whoever shows up to help her. And so Auntie Frances became a friend and a collaborator of mine through Fat Beats. They started working together and then I got to know her in that way. And so the three of us wrote our chapter together about the, because as we were doing this research, Auntie Frances actually got evicted from the house where she was living. And it was a whole mess because she was a senior and there's supposed to be rent control, but they found a loophole and the house had gotten sold and they found a loophole. And so there was a whole effort to try and keep her in her house, but eventually failed, but she settled and then was thankfully able to find a new apartment in the neighborhood, which is quite difficult to do. And I think because she as an individual had so much community support, she was able to do that. But people who were less well-known in the neighborhood would not have been able to do the same thing. So, and then I started working with my colleagues, people like Josh Sika in Colorado and Yuki Cato, who had been in New Orleans and now is in Washington, D.C., and seeing similar patterns all across the country where food was, and especially like sustainable food was part of the package of what it is that developers want to build up in order to revitalize, and I'm using air quotes that you can't see on the radio, but that they want to use to sell a new neighborhood to a different group of people who need to be persuaded that this space is now for them. Yeah. Well, it is a fascinating collection of stories about communities and how gentrification works against individuals who were living there in the first place. And I will provide a link for that. Unfortunately, we're out of time and we've got to close. But I will provide a link to the book. I will provide a link to your website and your excellent TED Talk. And I think if I could find a bottom line to your work, it's certainly to listen to other people's stories. And in the next decade, certainly in the new year, Trying to find more empathy for one another would be a nice send-off. 
In closing, I need to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Allison Alcon, professor of sociology at the University of Pacific in Stockton, California, where her research seeks to understand and advocate for food justice. Thank you so much, Dr. Alcon, for being my guest. Thank you for having me.